welcome to Guitar Radio Show, the show dedicated to the guitar player, guitar maker, gear builder, and purveyors of such items that you may not know about, but should. It's Friday night, and you know what that means. Mark David. All right, folks, welcome back to Guitar Radio Show. Today we have someone, someone who's a real rocker, uh, a great guitar player, recording artist, composer, uh, producer. She's got a, a new single out, uh, just came out January 1st. It's called Whiskey Kind of Girl. And uh, it's going to be part of her uh, new album, which is going to be called Point of No Return, which will be out uh, late spring, early summer of 2019. So we are psyched to have with her Teresa Topaz. Welcome to Guitar Radio Show. How are you? I'm doing great, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on today. My pleasure. Um, You know, it's funny. I got turned on to you through all of the NAM reporting. And so immediately the first thing I do is I go to my iTunes uh, or I'll go to Spotify or one of the or or YouTube for that matter. And I see the name. And I go, OK, let me type in the name. Let's see what we got. And I heard you and I was like, wow, wow, what a great voice. Oh. Wow. What a great guitar player. Let's talk to this person and see what they've got to say. So, uh, yeah, you're bringing it. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for uh, for the support. You know, I, I have this wonderful saying that it, it's just true. It's support goes the whole way. And, you know, it, it's it's nice when you can get turned on to something new. And NAM is, my God, the place to find uh, everything you could ever want in the music industry. But, yeah. um, you know, it's it's just nice to be a part of that community. And it's it's great because, you know, at NAM, you've got everyone. You've got the artists, the vendors, the reps, the managers, everybody under one roof. And mm. we're all just there to make good music for people to enjoy. Yeah, and and also the cacophony of NAM, NAM which is uh, 95 dB constantly for four days. Oh, God, I can't even tell you. Um, <laughs> last year I had Jeff Cathan play for me from Bad Company and Roger Fisher. And he's he's... He has a tw- he normally plays a twenty eight inch kick, and he broke his stick on an electric kit on the first song. That's how much power this guy has. Uh-huh. He's a phenomenal drummer, and we got turned down three times. You cannot play rock and roll quiet; it doesn't work. No, 
And so it's just, unless you're up in a main room or a stage off on the side somewhere, you really can't play with a drummer. Um, so it's just, you know, the NAM police will get you. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. It really is. I, I, I haven't done it in a, in a few years. And uh, because to be perfectly honest with you, I can't, I just can't handle all that noise. I mean, I do the Dallas Guitar Show every year, but it's different. You can escape it really easily. Uh, you know, and take it in doses. But once you're in there, once you're in the convention center at An- in Anaheim, it's kind of like that's it. You're, you know, it's the inner sanctum. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, they opened up that new wing last year. And yeah. so most of your mics and pro audio kind of recording equipment is over in that area, Mackie Shore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roland was there last year, but this year they were right across from UE on the main floor. So and it's just four floors. It's 140,000 people. So, oh uh, you know, you're you're really in the thick of it when you get there. And to be honest, four days is not enough to cover that place. <laughs> yeah, I like to call it knee deep in the hoopla. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Know, that's crazy. So, how is how is um, how is Point of No Return going to be different from Reset Me, your last record? Yeah. So, um, you know, Reset Me. It's got an interesting story because it was years of songs I had been writing, and when I was younger, um, I primarily played acoustic. I was a, a Martin player, and electric and acoustic are very different instruments. They're strung mm-hmm. the same way, they're tuned the same way, but their applications are, you couldn't be more night and day. They are different instruments, you're right. Yeah, and so, you know, most of that song was acoustically driven, and I have so many inspirations, you know, growing up, I listened to everything from, you know, Cole Porter and, and Billie Holiday from my father's influence to Zeppelin and Bob Dylan and Pink Floyd and my mom, and then the grunger and, and industrial music on my own accord in the 90s. So, I kind of you know, was just throwing it all together and just going by feel. And, you know, the the distance between the two albums, uh, it's about two and a half years. And, you know, I just really wanted to hone in on what are my roots? What, what genre really describes me as an artist? And I'm really rock and roll day long and blues. Mm-hmm. There is a bit of a Southern twang to me just mm-hmm. because of influences like Leonard Skinner and Creed's Clearwater growing up, Black Crows, you know, that's never going to die out of me. But, um, you know, I've just really kind of focused in on what's my message, who am I as an artist, and really just honed in on that alone. And um, Reset Me was, you know, a, a compilation of songs, you know, that did have a message, but yet it, it wasn't as direct as Point of No Return. And I think with the new record, I've really taken the time to find out what am I trying to say? What am I trying to give a message to fans to listen to? And you know, I've reached a point in my life where there is no turning back. And it's the, the new record is a message of uh, be inspired to be the person who you are and don't ever, ever regret or turn back because you've got one life. Don't waste it. Yeah, that's good words to live by for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a 17 year old daughter who wants to go into the music business. And, oh, excellent. And as somebody who was, you know, who was and is in the music business, I was in the music business from a band standpoint in the 80s. And then in the, you know, retiring for the 90s and coming back in the 2000s as a session guy and and uh, and now this, uh, you know, when you hear when you hear, you know, the most one of the most important precious gifts in your life tell you that they want to go ahead and do this and get in a van. <sighs> it's, you know, 
It's like, okay, I've been there. I've done that. All right, so maybe I can tell you some things so you won't make the same mistakes I (laughs) did. But those mistakes are so vital for learning. They They are. are Because some some people listen and some people don't. I was one that didn't, and I'm hard-headed, and I have to learn it on my own. But that's, you know, sometimes what can really, you know, help define you as a musician or a person and to see how you have to be very driven in this business no it's true and it builds it builds character it definitely does mm-hmm. yeah, the, the good the, the good the bad and the ugly really does yeah but I, you know you do have proper hesitation if i hear that yeah yeah well, one of the cool things is like you know like earlier today she just comes up to me and she says hey i was i was checking out um the new fender mustangs what do you think and I was like, oh, my God, she's got gas. Oh, she's, that's awesome. This is her first moment of gear acquisition syndrome. Yay! <laughs> so, yeah, it's funny, you know. It's it's kind of a trip. But, um, but so for you, um, <clears throat> where, when did it start? I mean, what was, what, was the, what was the first thing that you heard or first person that you heard you said, I want to play the guitar? Uh, you know, when I was real young, I, I started singing first and, um, you know, I started singing at six mm-hmm. and, um, my parents used to take me out to dinner and I would go up to different tables at my godparents' restaurant and I would, I would sing for cherries mm-hmm. and I would perform and they always knew music was going to be in my blood. I have musicians, well-known musicians in my family, so that wasn't going to be a big surprise, but the guitar, I remember... I must have been eight years old, and I heard Jimmy Page in a video. I was watching, my mom had something up with Led Zeppelin, and I watched him play a Les Paul. And I'll never forget that sound. And it was that particular year, that guitar, it was a 59 Les Paul that he was playing. I think it was number one, probably, that he was playing. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've never, that's like ingrained in my mind. Yeah. <clears throat> so when it, excuse me. When I first started playing guitar, I obviously wanted whatever that body style was, and I ended up getting a Strat little squire or whatnot. And I, I slept with it when I was 12. I slept with it every night and I had my ear glued to the boom box, listening to Jimi Hendrix and Zeppelin and Nirvana and trying to figure out where all the notes were and how to play it. And shockingly learned, picked it up really quickly. I could learn a song in a matter of a day or two. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, uh, this is actually going to lead into a funny story. So, you know, at the time I didn't realize what guitar that that was. I didn't realize why I was so drawn to that, but I've always been a Gibson girl. Mm-hmm. And um, when I got Rose a couple of years ago, um, she's basically a 59 reissue with the next profile and everything. And I was down at Seymour Duncan and I was meeting with MJ, who's their custom shop uh, manager. And I went and met the rest of the staff. When I came back, we were talking about tone. She's like, what's your tone? I said, 58, 59, Les Paul, all day long. And so she goes in the back. She comes back with a bag. It's a Seymour Duncan, you know, tote bag. And I said, what's this? She's like, it's a gift. And so I pull it out and my jaw drops to the floor because Joe Bonamassa had come down with his 59 Les Paul and they pulled out the pickups and they analyzed them and MJ sat and hand wound them. There was a limited run and the pack that she gave me were signed by Bonamassa and Duncan. Hmm. So I'm also a guitar tech. So when I came home, the first thing I did was grab some bumblebee capacitors and, and I got to soldering. And the moment I plugged it in, I literally started crying because it was the same tone that I heard when I was a little girl. Oh, wow. And I had to go back and redo 
the entire whiskey song and I'm now retracking all of the guitar parts and the solos because my guitar is and my engineer hates me right now. He's <laughs> like, You did what? <laughs> That'll be worth it. That's that sounds great. What a great thing. Oh, it's just night and day, you know, and it's like I, I finally found the tone that I was after. So oh, that's fantastic. Um, to answer your, your question, a long story, uh, you know, got obsessed with it, but really started playing at 12 and then started writing my own songs at 14. That's cool. So favorite Zeppelin record? Oh, God, I, I, <laughs> I don't I don't even know how to how to I, I, like which song off of each record. I mean, I don't really have a favorite. It's it's there's particular songs like Bon Your Stomp is it's something that. Yeah. rings home with me like mm-hmm. I can when see I did that. driving me I yeah that, that. That, that big kick going on mm-hmm. I mean you know as you can't my god I was obsessed with that yeah. houses of the holy I mean you know it just depends on what mood I'm in I mean it's just you, you can't pick an album from them and be disappointed yeah you know it's interesting it's really funny I, I, I'm blown away that you you mentioned Jimmy Page because when I when I heard reset me I thought to myself, "Wow, she's really got a, she's got a, a vibe like Paige. She's got, she's got this vibe, this, this, kind, you know. But it's not a. She, you're not copying it. It's just kind of like. I, I thought to myself, "Wow, she's. I, I, I was actually I was exercising. I was doing my workout, listening to the record, and I was like, man, she's got like this Zeppelin DNA." Going. Oh wow! Oh, that's a compliment. That's <laughs> really that what I thought. Me. I mean, honestly, I really did. I, but you know what I was thinking? I really was thinking Zeppelin three. Zeppelin, yeah, Zeppelin. I mean, I remember the day I bought Zeppelin one, two, and three on cassette. Mm-hmm. And you know, and that's not that long ago. So, I mean, I think I wore it out. I had to yeah. go buy another tape, and it takes a lot of you know play in order for you to wear out a cassette. Yeah, and I was just blown away by you know his maneuvers and how he played the instrument i mean the man can take without even touching the volume he can make that instrument sound like an acoustic oh yeah and then all of a sudden go full dry and it's all in the touch of his hands i mean i'm just what (laughs) for sure oh yeah and what what he did with a 12 string guitar too and a mandolin i mean he was just you know yeah it, it was uh they were a special band i you know like for me oddly enough it's presence that's the record. Pre- oh yeah, presence is. Oh I just, my God. just there's, there's this there's this um, sullen nature to the record. Obviously, they were going through a real rough time at that point, and they were doing mm-hmm. they were doing a lot of designer drugs, and you know, and and Plant had a, had the broken leg at that time, and you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, but when I hear T for one, that's that to me is the ultimate. Of a '70s blues rock song, you know, yeah. twelve bar blues, minor blues, just so good. The guitar solo on there is astounding. Yeah, you know what? It's like he would he would go into the studio and he didn't know what was going to come out of him, yeah. and he just you know through all the years of him being a studio musician, and I mean yeah. you know it's it's yeah. you're you're required to just you know go, yeah. and I, I mean hearing stories, it's like. Um, I can't remember which track they were actually recording, but uh, there's a story that goes around that basically, you know, he did the take like one or two times. He was getting frustrated and he came out and went, you know, just took a break. And all of a sudden 
he just snapped into it. And there's that Zen moment, as I like to call it. And it's you lose control. That, mm-hmm. that creative spirit just takes over. Mm-hmm. And God knows who you're channeling at that moment. Yeah. And it just flows out of you. And, you know, I, I, I dreamed to be able to, to, you know, organize that to happen when I wanted to, but that would take the magic out of it. So you just, you just got to hold on and, and go for it. But he was, God, he's just such a master. He's, he, he's one of my, he's my main guitar God. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I look up to Jimmy yeah. Page. Oh yeah, for sure. So with Reset Me, you played most of the instruments yourself. I did. The only instrument that was not played by me was uh, bass guitar. So I actually, you know, charted and, and composed every instrument. Um, I wish I had uh, real violins and cellos. I could play those too. But um, you have to lean a little bit on, you know, the, the MIDI world in that sense. But I did use a wonderful unit called um, the Triple Play from Fishman. Uh-huh. That was a big help for me because in that unit, so like on um, uh, Fantasy and then also on Playful Games, you can layer in different pads and instruments. And you, I can actually put each instrument into a different key. I can change them into octaves. I can do whatever I want with it and have them come in and come out at different moments. But they all follow what I'm playing on the guitar. So I use that primarily for the pads um, and then every other instrument that I have in our studio, then it was actually played. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have studio musicians, so I made it happen, <laughs> figured out a way to do it. That's cool. So the new record though, you, you brought in, you brought in some guns. Yes. Yeah. Keith's been with me since the beginning. Um, you know, you wouldn't, he's Berkeley trained. He was, uh, an upright, uh, jazz, uh, bass player at Berkeley, but, um, you know, he, he left after about two years. He didn't graduate cause then he just started getting into the mix of music and he's a phenomenal bass player. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am grateful that I have Vince Littleton on with me on drums and Vince has got quite a Rolodex of, uh, experience under his belt. He's, he was played with Neil Diamond for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's played with Trey Anastasio. He's played with Bonnie Raitt. Um, uh, I mean, just the list goes on and, and he's a Jerry phenomenal. Gar- and Jerry Garcia. Uh, and Jerry, Jerry Garcia, Garcia too. Yeah, he's uh, he's been doing this for a long time, and he's my God, the experience that man has, and uh, he's a field drummer. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's you have just like every style of, of you know guitar player, bass player, like everyone has their their own way that they approach it, yeah. and so like it's funny because Vince versus Jeff are night and day. Like Vince has got a very soft touch and he's, he's a, you know, he really kind of gets into the, the, the emotional side of the song. Jeff is your, you know, classic heavy rock drummer. If you want mm-hmm. power, you want bottom, like you go for Jeff. So mm-hmm. it's interesting where you can have a different style of song. Cause on the new record, I've got, you know, some songs are more like Southern rock and another song is a little darker, kind of like Aquarians. So I'm always going to yeah. have that harder rock industrial epic big yeah. piece. Yeah. And you got to find the right people for that. So it's, you know, I might pull in Jeff for that one song. So I haven't gotten to that point yet with that track, but I'm very grateful to have such wonderful musicians around. That's cool. Yeah. I, I like that track Aquarian. It's, it's very cinematic. That's, that's how I describe it as a cinematic rock epic. I, 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 have a feeling at some point in my career later in the, my latter years I'll, and I have an obsession with scoring I love mm. music for film because it's mm-hmm. like movement music and there's yeah. something that's I'm very drawn to that oh it's so, it's, it's 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 very I find it to be very um, rewarding it's something I've been doing a lot more in the last seven years or so and I, it's a blast 
It is because it's a different approach. It's not like just writing a rock song, you know, or a blues song. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's like this melodic essence that comes out of you. And it's, especially when you're painting a picture mm-hmm. and really trying to convey the message and the metaphor, you can get really creative with that yeah. kind of style. So yeah. I think sky's the limit when it comes, when it comes to that style of writing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So are you going to, are you going to, um, you're going to take this on the road and will it be these guys that go out on the road? Uh, I'm hoping for sure for Keith, uh, you, you know, Vince, Vince is a little bit more of a studio musician late these days because he also, I think he's working still with the, uh, he's got a lot of other projects that he's involved with here in Marin County. So, um, I probably going to have another drummer with me and then I haven't yet figured out who I'm going to bring in for rhythm guitar. Um, cause that's me playing it on, on everything too. I play all the guitar parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so far when I start out with tour, as soon as this, this hits, I'm going to start up and see it. Now, when I go to Seattle though, I'll have Lynn Sorensen and Jeff Kathan with me. Um, and then when I come down to California again, I'll, I'll pick Keith and, uh, probably shun up for drums and then continue down California. And I'm hoping to cut across the South. So we'll be hitting Texas for sure. Cool. I'd love to, we'd love to have you in Austin. Yeah. I can't, can't have, I cannot go through the South without coming to Austin. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it's a very different taco and burrito than you'll find in LA. I, I bet, you know, we are, you know, we're very blessed in LA to have such amazing Mexican food, but, um, I'm Mexican is one of my favorite styles of, and you can, I'll never turn down Mexican. So I'm very <laughs> eager to always try something different. <laughs> <laughs> so run us through your rig. Um, so you've got the Les Paul, obviously that you're modified Les Paul. Um, so yep. where, where, take um, us through the signal chain. Sure. So, um, I have a couple different instruments that i use live i actually i have a good friend of mine who actually just gave me another les paul mm. <laughs> so we can never have too many but that's true um uh, i'm gonna trick it out actually i just actually got picked up i'm with uh graph tech now as an artist ah. so i'm gonna be doing a uh, a series i'm gonna start actually tomorrow um <laughs> and i'm gonna be converting this completely over into a slide guitar and throwing a bigsby on it with a vibramate um so she's gonna get a brand new bone nut uh the tusk um graph tech one and then there's the locking ratio tuners that i'll be installing mm-hmm. and this guitar is going to live in open d and open g um my main guitar though is rose and she's the um 100 university of les paul i liked this model specifically because of the neck i've i've owned and played very, tons of les pauls this is the best guitar I've ever owned on my on the planet because Gibsons have a 17 degree pitch on the headstock, so it causes you know some tuning issues mm-hmm. because it's so severe. Mm-hmm. This guitar was made on a day where the person found out they were having a baby and getting a race. I mean, it it plays like a custom <laughs> shop guitar. <laughs> it just does. It does not go out of tune. I've never seen a Gibson like this. I'll leave it. It'll be raining overnight, and I'll come back the next day, and I don't have to touch it. That's great. So. And there is something to be said for the brass nut. It does hold yeah. tuning much easier, and it's cool because if you do play slide, you can make two cranks of the nut, and then it raises up with enough height on the action so you can actually use a, a glass and you won't hit the frets. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, and so, the brass tends to be a little warmer too, which is nice. It's a little, yeah, it's a little adds a little warmth to it, and especially you know I play cobalt strings, so they're uh-huh. um, I call them high octane because they the relationship of the alloy with the pickups it's there's a magic that happens. So you know if you're using a regular nickel wound wrap string, and let's say you have your distortion set to noon, 
with cobalts, you get the same amount of power down at like four or five. Okay. So okay. the only thing is they don't last that long. That's, that's, the only what, I was gonna, that's what I was going to ask you. Do they oxidize quicker? Yep. It's about a week. Wow. So, yeah. Well, if you're playing a lot too, the oils in your fingers and things like that, but really cobalts or nickels, they're dead by day seven. Wow. It's so funny too, because I'm, I'm notorious for not changing my strings often <laughs> enough. And, uh, I was talking to JD Simo and he, he's like, he said, he told me he leaves strings on for two years. Oh my God. He says, if, he goes, he says, if it ain't breaking, I ain't changing it. Oh wow. He says, the dirtier, yeah. the better. Some, some people like that. The only problem with it is really after about on a nickel wound steel core, you know, they'll last you uh, four weeks. It, once you introduce rust into the mix, the intonation shot. Mm-hmm. So you're 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 a few cents short sharp here and there. So yeah. that's the that's the downside. Yeah, and if you're somebody that's kind of acidy, you know, that puts out yeah. a lot of acid, then you're you're really you're really in trouble. Yeah, exactly. So and you know, every player is a little different. Um, yeah. I, I I stole the the talcum powder trick from Keith Richards. Uh-huh. And you just dab a little in your hands, and you're doing a gig. It, it really prevents the sweat from cutting through. So oh, that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I've seen Jeff Beck do it too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Gra- I think GravTech actually they sent me this dry glide, so it's like their version. It's a little, um, a little softer of a, a material than uh, baby powder itself, but it's it's kind of the, it's the same exact essence yeah. of it. So, yeah. um, but so uh, guitar. Let's see through. I play through a Kemper profiler. Mm-hmm. And Kempers are for me like for the road. It's just it's perfect because you know I have amps and pedals and everything, but I can program everything into this. And a lot of people get them mixed up with what's um, between what's the difference between a profile and a modeling amp. So two completely different categories. And the Kemper for me, you know, when I was relying or trying to figure out what head I really wanted to work on and what I wanted to take on tour. I did a, I had my back turned and I couldn't, I was listening to the tube being played and then listening to the Kemper and I picked the Kemper four out of five times thinking that was the tube amp. Hmm. So the, the only downside to Kemper's live is you don't, it, it can kind of not give you the same feeling. You don't have the presence from a tube amp. So there's, there's the pros and cons with it. But, mm-hmm. um, other than that, 6,100, and then I run through a Marshall 1936 lead A and B depending on the gig. And then I have uh, Celestian 30s vintage wired in there. Um, and, I mean, that's just, it's been my old trusty, you know, it just works. And I just, it depends on how much power that I need for the show or whatnot. But, um, and then I run through a Voodoo GCP uh, floor controller for the guitar. And then my vocals, I use uh, TC Helicon Voice Live 3 Extreme. Mm-hmm. I've been using the two, but they just sent me the three uh let's see back up back like um maybe september of last year and i did a video for them um showing showcasing the difference and i rely on that specifically for my vocals and so that's a really cool unit because you can just add a little reverb a little delay you know for songs more like you know pink floyd style melodic kind of tunes i'll use a little bit more of the chorus and you know the um the kind of crazy effects but for the most part i just rely on some reverb and delay on vocals mm-hmm. so it's it's not i don't like a ton of pedals to the point where it's just overwhelming, you know? Well, yeah, it's because then you're tap dancing. It's too much. And then you forget you're playing, you know, and it's, it, you know, I just, I wanted to minimize everything Mm because I just had too many, I had like 20 pedals. I'm like, this is overwhelming. I can't, you know, I don't remember which one to 
touch in this part of the song is just it's too much mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. just the simpler the better so i can just focus on you know delivering the the performance at my best to make sure people are having a good time yeah for sure for sure so as um so the kemper is it is it is it have power in it or are you adding a power amp to that so they have two versions I, you know, if you're in a studio setting and it's not leaving, then most people get the unpowered and they'll, you know, rely on like a Furman rack or, or whatever their power source is, uh, you know, to, to power it up. And there's some pros and cons to that. But for me, as a touring musician, I have the powered. So like for Nam, all I do is bring my Les Paul and that Kemper and I can just plug straight into the mains. Um, I can go through a cab and it, you know, no matter which way I go, it doesn't affect the tone at all. Right. So it's it's a little easier to just travel with versus, you know, the whole rigmarole of everything. Right. Do you ever find that using the Kemper when you play alongside somebody else who's using a tube amp that the digital signal gets swallowed up? You know, surprisingly, no. The one thing that I miss, though, is the warmth. Uh-huh. You know, you, you don't get that from, from a Kemper. You, you, I mean, you get the vibrations coming through the cab, but there's this buttery creamy tone that comes from the yeah. tube amp yeah, yeah. you know and it's it it's the closest thing to it mm-hmm. i will i'll give them that i love my camper i do but at the end of the day a tube amp is a tube amp <laughs> yeah no i hear you for sure um so what do you do you, do you have a backup in case uh it would you know crap out on you yeah i use the 6100 um so uh-huh. you know it depends on on <laughs> what kind of gig it is if it's more or less me just jamming along with people like i would rely on that because then i don't need so many different tricks and bells and whistles and everything i don't need my patches mm-hmm. um so the the camper i've got everything kind of stored into it so it really just depends on the gig but um i'm for this next tour come up you know we're going to be doing larger venues so i i need to add some more power so i haven't really decided which way i'm going to go i i really am a marshall girl i just i love marshall but a lot of the new stuff, I'm, I'm really also integrating, you know, Fender and uh, Friedman. I mean, God, the, the Pink Talk is insane. I mean, I, I was at the booth at NAMM, and it's, I, I, you know, you're sitting there playing, you're bouncing up and down like a little kid because it just sounds that good. Yeah. So it, yeah. it, I think it's important to have, you know, a variety of styles because there is a magic that happens between a Les Paul and a Fender. And, you know, it's it's nice to have the different opportunities and not just sticking with that one particular tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So you, you're working with a lot of... You still there? Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, it sounded like... Okay. Okay. Um, so you, you're working with a lot of different companies, Ultimate Ears, Mogami, Roland, Graph Tech, like you mentioned earlier, Reunion Blues. Yeah. Um, um, is there anybody that you're not working with now that you'd love to work with? Gibson. <laughs> Did I say that too quick? No, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know, I had an endorsement with, I, I, I do. It's not, it's not exclusive, but my first guitar company was Zemitis. Uh-huh. And, you know, uh, blessings to them. They, you know, Zemitis, when, when they were to me, Zemitis, you know, they were, Danny O'Brien was hand carving all that artwork on those yeah. guitars and the metal top guitars. Yeah, and then else, Tony man. would make, I'm sorry? That's something else, that stuff. Oh my God, they were, I mean, you know, Ronnie Wood was the one that really kind of helped put them on the map back oh, yeah. in the 70s. And so sure. that was kind of an honor, to, you know, to be pulled in with Zemitis. And then they, 
they sold because Tony passed away and then Danny kind of gave up his, you know, seat as one of the head, you know, runners of the company. And then they got sold to Honda Shikai in Japan. And now the guitars are stamped metal and, you know, going through a machine and being outsourced to Korea. So for me, it kind of just lost the appeal. And I will only, I only ever want to be paired up with companies that I believe in mm-hmm. that are, you know, that help me do my job better as a musician. So, I've always been a Paul player. I always have. I always will be. And it's just, I know with the change that's gone on with them, you know, I'm very grateful that JC is now the new CEO with Gibson. And, you know, he really wants to make Gibson what it was. He actually cares. And so that's got all of us really excited. Um, Yeah, I mean, I've had several different shows where I had different people come on and talk about you know, before before JC came in, and we were all like, "Is this brand? I mean, could this brand possibly go away?" I know. You know, we were we were re- like, there was all sorts of crazy talk there for a little while about like ja- ja- um, Chinese consortiums that were looking looking to buy it, and I was like, "Oh no, please don't let this happen!" I know. You know, and oh. uh, I mean, even George Groon. Uh, was was saying, you know, nobody's too big to fail. So, you know, anything is possible. And it was scary there, but I'm so glad that they pulled it out. Yeah, I got really scary there with um, the investor that uh, basically he was with Rolling Stone and he was a secret investor with Rolling Stone. Basically, Henry wanted that Kalamazoo plant back because Heritage Mm -hmm. is the original Gibson and they kept all the original molds. Right. So when you ordered, you know, uh, you know, uh, what is it? A 535, not 535. I forgot what their model was for the Les Paul, but that was hand carved, you know, and that was the original plant. So they were going after Heritage and they purchased Heritage and then everyone got let go from there. We were really worried that. He was going to do to, I mean, bless his heart, but it, he didn't do very good for it in the latter years. Yeah. And we were scared he was going to take down Heritage, too. And then so I was so I'm in the Bay Area here right now. I'm originally from L.A. And J.C. actually lives a town over from me here. And uh, he's very close with one of our local music stores here, Bananas at Large. And the owner's very good friends with him. And, you know, so I kind of am hearing all the good news that's coming up and really hearing the the, the the truth that you know uh, i think jc was with levi's for yes. many years yes and then we got the, the the newsletter that came out saying that he's proud to now be the new ceo with gibson and all i can't tell you how many friends of our little our music community up here kind of jumped up for joy went out for a beer to cheers because it wasn't some bain capital or you know cbs move again and mm. you know we're really hoping to get back to what they were because there's a reason we're always after the 58 and 59 and 60 Les Paul because mm-hmm. it, everything was made in house, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, yeah. and the craftsmanship, you can't, you can't buy that unless you do it. The, a pair of hands you can, will always win against a machine. Mm-hmm. Well, based on, based on what I saw at NAM, it, I mean, it is astounding how they just made this about face, even with their, I mean, the acoustic line, obviously the, all the electrics and the Les Pauls, but the, the acoustic line and the Epiphone line, bringing them back into yeah. the fold in the way that they did. I mean, just stepping it up. I was so relieved, so relieved. It was night and day because the year prior they weren't there. If you remember, they were over. They didn't do Nam, and all of us were kind of going, "What? 
where's Gibson? Yeah. <laughs> probably the first did, time. That was probably the first time in their history that they didn't do I, that. Yeah. I never looked into if they ever happened again, but I, you know, I don't ever, I've never heard of Gibson not being a dam, and they've always been right next to Fender. Right. And um, even the year prior, the booth was not that spectacular, to be honest. Like, you could tell they were doing it on a budget. Mm-hmm. But this year, I tried to get up to just to meet JC, and every time I went up there, that room was packed. Yeah. I couldn't even get in. Mm-hmm. The first time I could actually weasel my way in was Sunday, and, you know, I mean, the booth looked wonderful, but, I mean, they had performers morning, noon, and night, you know, mm-hmm. more of acoustic Americana sets during the day, rock mm-hmm. and roll towards the latter part of NAM, and mm-hmm. they just, they, they, they knocked it out of the park. They really did. They had that um, jam on Thursday night, and I was still in the car coming down from the Bay Area. Otherwise, I would have been there. But Ann Hart and Peter Frampton, I mean, you name them, and they were up playing. And it was, you know, JC got up and, and gave a speech and really said that he cares about the integrity of the company, and he you know, wants to bring bring that back to players. So, I mean, you know, we're everyone seems to be very happy and grateful that it's him that's in the driver's seat. Yeah, for sure. Well, keep chipping away at the stone. Eventually, you'll get you'll catch somebody's ear and get them to listen, and, and uh, maybe you know maybe there'll be a uh, Teresa Topaz model. I've had that design for many years. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me. Good for you. That's the, I, I love that. I love when people. I love when people are are big thinkers. You know. Oh yeah. That's so important. You know. I I, I, I saw a poster the other day. I was. Uh, I was I was in a class the other day and I saw a poster. It said, "All good things come to those who hustle." Yeah, it, you know, no dream is too big, and you know, I won't stop until I get Rolling Stone status. And it's it, it, there's a saying that you can dream up a button or you can dream up a castle, and it's exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's the the biggest thing is you have to believe it. Yeah. For sure. Because no one's going to do it for you. So that's, you just got to believe in yourself. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. So um, as we get closer to the release of uh, Point of No Return, um, we're, we're, looking at it, we're looking at a potential tour, right? Yes. And we're looking at, uh, will there be video? Yeah, I'm actually um, right now in uh, the works of getting a video crew together for a video for Whiskey Kind of Girl. And then after that, I haven't decided which track I'm going to do a video off of on the new upcoming one. There's two I'm toying with between, but one's kind of winning, but I haven't made up my mind yet on that. So it just depends on the set and how I get everything dialed in. So um, I might be doing, I'll be doing Whiskey Kind of Girl up here and I might be doing the secondary video down in Los Angeles. Okay, cool. Very cool. So what, you know, I ask people this question all the time. When you are creating, how much of it for you is your heart? How much is it is your head? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I think my biggest goal is to get my head out of the mix. Because that's when I start to run into problems. When I wrote Aquarians, to me, that's my favorite song on the last, on the last record. Mm-hmm. And that song came out of me by reading an article about, you know, uh, some uh, about war, basically, and a a political point of view on it. 
uh, in the LA Times, and I had just gotten up. Normally, I write at night. You know, most sometimes I'll have a glass of whiskey with me um, or a glass of wine just to kind of get into that mindset. But this was different because I hadn't even taken a sip of coffee, and I read one line. It was just three words together, and all of a sudden, I was off on a tangent. I wrote four pages in less than ten minutes, mm-hmm. and at the end of it, I went, "Crap! Now I got to edit this." <laughs> <laughs> and I just. I, I strive to get into that Zen moment because you know some of those are some of the best songs we've ever listened to, mm-hmm. and 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 you know like I I, mean, I I can list each artist who said you know basically yeah this song pumped out of me in five minutes. So I usually start with a concept, and I hope to just keep going and keep going before I start to dry out a bit or or you know kind of lose steam on them a little bit. And for me, for some reason. You know, it's always, it's the second verse that's the hardest for me sometimes. And as long as I get that first concept and that first line going, then I'm good. But I think I overthink too too much, and I think every artist is guilty of that. Yeah, Um, Because, yeah, I mean, we we all do it. So it's just kind of battling that and relying more on my heart and and the energy versus overthinking it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Oh, it's the same way. Absolutely. And I totally agree with you about the, you know, if I get the first verse, okay, then I'm, then I'm, I I can probably get the snowball effect. But, Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes, yeah, I get stymied by the uh, second verse. Yeah. What do I, you know, I love it. I love it when it's something that, you know, is literally a, you know, it's just this, immediate thought and it all comes out in 20 minutes you know you know and that happens less now i'll be perfectly honest (laughs) but um, you need more whiskey (laughs) yeah yeah and uh but you know it's uh yeah yeah i totally agree with you absolutely yeah you nailed it for sure i i I think we you know we've gotten to this realm and I, I know every artist has ever been through this mindset, even in the 60s and the 70s, but everything was so much more organic in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have auto-tune. We didn't have, everything wasn't perfect. Right. And I, I just feel like nowadays everything's gotten so advanced, mm-hmm. excuse me, advanced with technology mm-hmm. that we're almost expected to be perfect in everything that we do. Yeah. And, you know, I like it when I hear singers even at the grammys mm-hmm. get one note maybe just a few cents sharp because it's real it's a real performance mm-hmm. and you know i basically i take that also within my writing and especially when i'm writing solos mm-hmm. and it's like it's got to be perfect it's got to be perfect it's like well, wait a minute no it doesn't have to be perfect yeah you know it's you can slide a note straight in or you know it, it just means you're human i'm not saying i'm gonna you know produce something that's choppy at all but mm-hmm. There's this weight that sometimes I think I put on myself to be perfect, and that's that's not rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, and 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 there, I mean, in a studio setting, there's a lot of potential for sterility. You know, it can be, mm-hmm. it can become really sterile really quick, especially depending on who's at the helm. So, I always find it interesting when I hear a record by a band or an artist. And the first record, I'm going, well, that's pretty good. And then I see them live and I go, well, why didn't they do that? Right. Why didn't that happen in the suit? Why couldn't that happen? You know, a perfect example is um, Kiss. 
their very first record. Have you ever heard it? Uh, I don't know if I've actually heard the first one. It's the very first studio record that they did. It it's it's just it's just like watered down milk. That's what I. That's the only way I could describe really? it. It's like watered down milk. And then you hear that, you know. And then, I mean, that's the worst thing to have: watered down milk. I mean, you can't even spice that up with cookies. So yeah. you know, it's like <laughs> you know, it's weird because then you hear their live record, you go, "Holy!" And the same, oh, so all those same songs, you know, a bunch of those songs from the from that first record, and you go, "Holy crap!" You yeah. know. But then you hear a band like Zeppelin. And Led Zeppelin one, and Led Zeppelin one sounds like you know the only thing that's missing is the audience. That's a very live yeah. sounding record. You know, there's, I, I, you know, I think a lot of the times, and I, when I first transitioned from acoustic to electric, and then went from just having electric acoustic on stage to now having all of these buttons to push mm. and all of this to think about mm-hmm. and switching back between an AB pedal between guitars. I've had it where I went put, put the acoustic down. I went to pick the electric up and it wasn't plugged in. <laughs> so I, I think there's a lot of times when you're transitioning or kind of just getting in, get your feet wet with things. You, you think too much and you forget yeah. to feel, and that comes across in the performance mm-hmm. and it comes across to your audience. Mm-hmm. And the, the biggest thing for me is to make sure that energy is on the record the right. same way the energy is live. Right, right, for sure. Well, you know, you brought up an interesting point there. You know, I, I've seen a lot of live recordings of you with acoustic guitar, and mm-hmm. and I find that your the acoustic guitar for you in that setting is purely, uh, at least from my vantage point, it's purely a uh, a foundational platform for your voice. Yeah, you know, I, I between the, the last record, I mean, a, every song was written on acoustic with me playing lead over it, yeah. and especially the twelve string. I mean, that that fantasy is such a fun song to play. But I think I had done that for so long, I ended up kind of pigeonholing myself into a genre that I didn't expect to be in, and so you know, I kind of wanted to really focus in on that but you're right there's something you know my engineer even pointed out to me he's like you know this new record everything's electric he's like don't forget about your acoustic because there's a special relationship that i do have with that instrument Mm -hmm. and it's a very different application like we were talking about in the beginning and you know i did develop my own picking pattern and picking styles with that and it's it is very easy to incorporate that but um you know it, it there's like I said, there's some warmth that comes from playing those style of instruments that I don't want to let go of. But I think when when being introduced to your public and, and being introduced to new viewers and listeners across the nation, um, I think that's why I really wanted to hone in on the electric this time because mm-hmm. over the years I've developed into a very strong lead player, which, you know, rolling and becoming more percussive with the acoustic is much different than shredding on an electric. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I don't want to lose that, but I also wanted to really just focus in on lead rock. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think, you know, it's interesting because Reset Me is primarily an acoustic record in a sense. And then Mm -hmm. this new one being leaning more towards electric, I think it's going to make for some really great live shows. Oh, yeah. I mean, that'd be such a oh. nice, I mean, you know, I mean, here we are, we're talking, you know, we're going to, we're coming back to that whole Zeppelin thing, you know? 
you know? I'll, I'll, I'll take that reference all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it was so cool. I mean, you know, that it would be two and a half, three hour show. And uh, not that you're going to do that necessarily, but, you know, that two and a half, three hour show. And they'd, they'd open up with the electric stuff. And then, you know, I, I have a, boot, a great bootleg. And then Robert Plant says, and now it's time for the acoustic part of the show. Uh, right. <laughs> and and I, was, I was like, all right, let's do this, you know? And, you right. Know, you know, I, I, and they're doing, I, I, and they're doing. That's the way, <laughs> I, right? I mean, you know, and that's. I think that's that's my big inspiration for meddling the two together because there's been two obstacles for me with music. And again, looking up to Paige and seeing how he can go from electric to acoustic to mandolin and yeah. never lose that coolness, never right. lose that essence <laughs> of who he is as a player. No, he just suck you in even further. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and I just, if I can get a glimpse of that, and I really do appreciate that you said, you know, inspired by but not copying, because that's a big thing for me. You know, I, I find that it's important to listen. There are artists that you love their music, and mm-hmm. there's artists that inspire you. Mm-hmm. And so to take the best of what you can admire from them, yeah. and the, the, the trick is, is to make it your own. Yeah. Not to do exactly what they're doing verbatim, because... What's that term? The the best form of a compliment is, or the best form of flattery is. How does that go? I can't yeah, remember. the best form of flatter, flattery is imitation, or imitation, imitation is the best form of flattery. Right. Yeah, and and I I think you know a lot of people look you know they they, they play songs growing up, they learn the styles, they learn the licks, but then they forget to kind of transition that into something a little different. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I was very keen on you know i'll always kind of twist it up a little bit or or try to find it a way to make it my own well that's that's why tribute bands make me bonkers Oh God! Well, I mean, you know, you look. Know. Everybody's got everybody's got their something. You know, like Nika Costas, right? Everybody's got their something, but you know, it's kind of like for me as a musician, I can't see myself doing that only because it would. I feel it would stunt stunt the creativity. It's well, why, it does. Well, it's like you know, it's like why, like I'm doing. I'm getting ready to do a private party here in Austin, and they asked us to play a bunch of Jimmy Reed and some Freddie King. And, you know, when it came down to us divvying up the guitar solos, we were like, what are you going to do here? And we were like, well, nobody wanted to cop the record. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted, we want to kind of just do our own thing. You know, we're going to do the song and we're going to do the song in a traditional, in the, in its traditional form, but we don't necessarily want to cop it you know, as far as note for note solos, you know, I mean, hell, let's put it this way. If I was doing the, if I was doing a car song, <clears throat> you know, mm-hmm. I have to play an Elliot Easton song uh, solo because that's the way it was built. You don't, right. you you don't, you don't do that with an Elliot Easton solo. You don't do something your your own thing because it's the song within the song. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh God! I you know I have a, a, a mutual friend through social media, and you know he sent me the cover band you know there, there's always going to be you know people who want to listen to music that they recognize and i respect right, that but right. when it dominates the scene that's when i have an issue with it <laughs> well and, it's all about money <laughs> i got it's killing me and hey you know, you know my friend they gotta sell beer well i know but the problem is these these cover bands are illegally up in portland's got a very heavy tribute band scene i mm. mean these guys are are re-recording the albums <laughs> oh, illegally good. and then oh, selling merch with the original logo but with their name on really I'm like dude really like that's, you're gonna get sued that's absurd 
And there's this festival up there, and I mean, to each his own, and I I won't name what it is, but there's a festival up north. It's the size of Lollapalooza, and it's all for cover, like current bands that are alive and touring, not tribute bands. Like a tribute band, if you're going to do a proper tribute band, the artist is no longer. But like they're dressing up as the characters, and it's the size, it's thousands of people that go to this. I'm like, you know what, you guys, if you actually put that kind of energy in original music, you could be doing really, you know, sky's the limit with what you can do with it. You yeah. don't have any boundaries. Yeah, You're creating something from the heart. Well, it's an easy road. It's a much easier road. You're gonna get you're gonna get gigs. You're gonna work a lot. You're probably gonna get paid well because the beer is getting sold. So it's kind of how it is. It's, yeah. it's you know it's interesting. Like here in, in Texas, uh, Houston and Dallas are just are just crazy with it. You know. Really? Oh yeah. I mean, not oh. Austin. Not Austin so much. Austin's still a lot of you know mostly original music, but you know in in, in Dallas and Houston, it's like you know the, the Tom Petty tributes and Doors tributes and Pink Floyd tributes and oh, wow. you know lots and lots of that stuff. It's a big. It's a big deal. It absolutely. You know, is. I have to look at it this way because music has ebb and flow. And I was talking with a buddy of mine, and we were comparing the last kind of fifteen years kind of like the, the shift that happened with disco. Yeah. You know, it came out of rock, went into disco, and then it started coming out of that again when Eddie Van Halen came on the scene. Mm-hmm. And then rock and roll came back, and then clubs came back. And so I'm hoping that with the way music has been so pop-driven and so EDM-driven, that now we're starting to kind of come into this scene where we're seeing more instruments, and people want good music again i'm not yeah. saying that edm and pop is not good but i'm you know like no i see what you're saying i know what you're saying yeah, yeah, i'm saying five people on stage playing music from the heart like well yeah I'm I, saying, you'd like to think everything is cyclical I, right <laughs> you know I'm, I'm, and i'm hoping you're right but if i think if it does happen i think this time it's going to be dominated by women I cannot, I, you know, I love seeing this rise with women because as a female in rock and roll, I cannot tell you how many times I've walked in with my crew and they think my engineers, they act and I'm just a girlfriend. <laughs> I'm and I'm sure, like, does I'm he sure look like it. Teresa? I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you of would it. not believe, I mean, I just got to laugh it off. I've, you know, I've heard some backwards opinions mm-hmm. and, you, you know, I think that's what that made me go the route of actually becoming a certified guitar tech because the more you know the better yeah and you know it's it's just with women you just gotta be determined and not take no for an answer yeah and fender wrote an article a couple years ago they were seeing this insane increase in electric guitar sales and now 51 percent of their sales are women that's right and i absolutely love that so i actually threw up uh, an event together with PRS sponsoring it uh, about two years ago and had Ronnie Lee come up from the Runaways and we did a show together in Marin mm-hmm. and it was women in rock, women in music. And more and more we're seeing, you know, just more leading ladies. And if, if I can be one of those leading ladies for women in rock, then I've done my job and that makes me happy because exactly. that means other women are inspired to do the same Well, thing. that's right. I mean, every, every time there's a, you know, what, what was once a minority uh, you know, puts another brick on the foundation of you know of of that whatever particular music we're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. It you know it it's just another stepping stone, a good paving a paving stone for for generations to come. 
that's that's how it works, you know. Aretha Aretha was you know, there'd be there would be no Beyonce without Aretha. Exactly. You know, look at the the singers of even Peggy Lee and Billie Holiday. And, you know, I mean, there would have been no Kurt Cobain without, uh, you know, without uh, Steve Jones. Yeah. You know, and and you look at who like, look who the Rolling Stones, they're all listening to old blues players, you know, and it's music comes from people. I think more and more is. I, I, I would hope that up and coming musicians would really understand the history of what they're listening to and where it stems from and yeah. what countries or, you know, originated that style of music and how much really the blues yeah. oh, yeah. is the foundation of a lot of different styles of music. Oh, I absolutely. mean, even jazz came out like it's just, you know, the story behind that and it's understanding how these you know the modes work together and how someone came up with it by accident. Mm-hmm. And then it created a movement. It's so important. Oh, yeah. Well, the more I go forward, the more I end up going back. Right. <laughs> Have yeah. you seen Martin Scorsese's The Blues? Yeah, fantastic. Oh, that was spectacular. Yeah. And yeah. especially the one with B.B. King. Yeah. I mean, you see how much of a footprint and what that man did for music. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize they, you know, traipsing across two states just to go to be the, the first African-American on radio. Yeah. I mean, my God, it's like, it's, it gives me the chills, oh, you know, yeah. and that, that inspires you to want to go right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Hey, speaking of, we were talking earlier about Jimmy Page and his influence on you. Um, while you were at NAM, did you get to take a look at the uh, Dragon Tilly? You know what? Um, it's funny because the store that's closed here has actually got one on order. Uh-huh. So I, uh, they do this raffle. And when I went up there, I don't know if they pulled it by that point. I didn't get a chance to see it. I went to the Fender booth and I didn't see it, but really happy that they're actually doing that from the custom shop. So uh, one of the reps told me that, you know, they have this dealer day and everyone gets to walk around, put their business cards and bid on guitars or whatnot. So I don't know if that guitar had been pulled back in a meeting or whatnot, but I did not get to see it in person. Oh, bummer. I know. I've seen pictures of it. I mean, I love the story behind it. And it's like everyone thinks of Paige as like like Slash. It's Paul's all day long. That's all all he plays. But they don't really realize, you know, that really behind the scenes, that's a telly through a black magic. That's right. You know, that's and so right. it's it, a lot. There's a lot of misconception on how players get their tone. Mm-hmm. And a telly is it's actually the one guitar I don't own. I don't understand how that is possible, but <laughs> I need to go to the guitar store. Yeah, it's wild. Well, it's, um, it's like it's like Pete Townsend on, and who's next. Right. It's a Gretsch White Falcon through a Fender uh, Twin. Yeah. Like are, yeah, I mean, what, when I heard that, I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. What in a studio? Well, you, as a studio musician, you know this, but like, how many? There's so many records that have been done where you think it's going through a Strat or oh, yeah. you know Paul, and it's a 335, yeah. or it's a big box jazz guitar and it's yeah. got distortion overdriven on it, but a lot of compression, so it's not feeding back. Or, I mean, the tricks in the studio, it's not what musicians end up playing with live most yeah. of the time. Oh yeah, well, like Layla with a Fender Champ, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's mind blowing. Mind mind blowing. Mind blowing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, speaking of mind blowing, I wanted to ask you about your jam with uh, a buddy of ours, Steve Vai. Oh yeah. Um, you mean the Mama Jamma? Yeah. That, yeah, because I played with him at the Hard Rock too earlier that year. Right. But the Mama Jamma that was that was insane. It really was. Um, Larry Mitchell called me and invited me down 
And I, you know, I've been so focused on this record this last year. I think that, that the hard rock and then the NAM was the, my only performances for the whole year. I mean, that's not bad at all, but, um, I was like, Oh, I can make an exception for that. So I came down and Ronnie <laughs> Lee and I are, are good friends. And so she was driving up from San Diego. So we grabbed a room together and I got to the jam and I think I was supposed to go on at like seven thirty on Saturday and I'm backstage and it was just everybody. Everybody was there. You know, Nuno's back, Nuno Vettercourt's back there. I'm sitting next to Stephen Adler from Guns N' Roses. Uh, John Five's there. Doug McLeod, a phenomenal blues player. Um, Carl Van Hayen um, from Supertramp. I mean, the, the list, it's just this, like, rock star Rolodex of players that are just backstage hanging out and waiting to go on. And the one thing I thought was so funny, because it was just nonstop, um, no one was drinking. Mm-hmm. Everyone had wa- bottles of water. It's like the first time I've ever seen that many rock stars in one small compounded area, and not one of them had a beer. It's like that's, that's something you don't see every day. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think I went on until about eleven thirty that uh-huh. night. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, it's fifty-two hours of music with you know hundreds of musicians. It's almost impossible to keep the schedule the way it is like one band canceled another one got shoved up because they had to leave to go on tour last minute the other band had a show last minute in san diego so they had to be moved up and it was just everybody was just hanging out no one was mad no one was angry everyone's there for a good cause and just you know switching axes talking about their pickups everyone's geeking out over gear in the back larry mitchell's sleeping in the corner because he had the the night shift from 12 to 5 in the morning and then had his own set throughout the the event. But it was really cool because I think when I got up on stage with Steve, at that point he had been playing for like nine hours. Oh, my Lord. Oh, God. I mean, you know, he'd taken a few minutes of a break between, you know, full bands would go on and and weren't playing with him. But um, he was very tired. He was (laughs) extremely tired. And um, I think by the end, when he finally came off stage at one, he had been playing for 11 hours straight. So, but, um, you know, he was determined to, to, to make this happen and they raised a lot of money for such a great cause. And I, I'm really kind of bummed. I wasn't there the day prior. I couldn't get down because I had, um, a, a radio interview up here and I had to drive down the next day, but Oriante was there the night prior, Anita Strauss, um, Moby and, uh, Dave Navarro was there. Uh, so it would have been cool to have been up, you know, with the girls because, the only female guitar players that were there while I was there for the two days was Oriante, Nina Strauss, me, and Ronnie Lee. Mm-hmm. And there was a female bass player. And every other female was there was a, was a vocalist. So people kept coming up to me. They're like, oh, are you a vocalist? I'm like, well, I am, but I'm also a guitar player. They're like, oh, wow, an actual player. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> but um, it was just such a great event. And, you know, it backstage, Steve had all of the merch and all the artists were signing the guitars and there were four guitars total and had everybody's signature on it. And they ended up auctioning everything off the next week. And, um, it's just such a, for a good cause. It's for helping, you know, uh, big mama, which is the charity itself and it helps foster children in need. So That's he's cool. got such a big part. That's great. That is super cool. Well, I'll I'm, tell you, I'm, I'm really excited for the new record. I love the single. We heard that on the way in uh, when everybody was when you. That's the song we heard on the way in, folks. We heard "Whiskey Kind of Girl" from the record "Point of No Return." Um, I'm really excited for this record. 
Thank you so much. I am too. It's, it's been a long time coming and, and I'm, I'm very grateful that, you know, we're closing in on it and, uh, I'm just working morning, noon and night on it until, until we get there. And I, you know, every day I wake up and I just think to myself, I'm so grateful I get to play music today. So it's, yeah. uh, it's, I'm very grateful that it's gotten to this point and, uh, I'm, I cannot wait for the moment I get to release this. That's cool. Well, I'm I'm so glad that we got to talk, and I really appreciate you taking time to sit down and talk with me and uh, and my listeners. This has been really a lot of fun. I mean, uh, thank you so much for inviting me on, and it's I will never turn down a fun time to chat with you and chat about gear and guitars and good old music. Absolutely. Maybe someday we'll get to jam here in Austin or something. That would be awesome. I'll have to let you know when I'm heading down your way. Please do. Please do. Keep yeah. Us, keep, yeah, keep us... Keep us aware of everything that's going on with you, and uh, we'll let the world know about it, too. Right on. All right, cool. Folks, go to TeresaTopaz.com. The record is going to be called Point of No Return. It's coming out uh, early summer 2019. The the single is out right now. You can get it. It's called Whiskey Kind of Girl. Uh, When you go to TeresaTopaz.com, she has a whole lot of music you can stream there, and you can check it out. But like I always say, stream it. Like it, buy it. Don't be don't don't be a cheapskate. You know, support your musicians. That's right. If you want, if you you know, you know, if you if you like them, then you know, help them out. We're gonna we're gonna sign off right here, but you hold on one second. Thanks again, Teresa. Thank you. Check out Guitar Radio Show on Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, Instagram, and Tumblr, and of course on guitarradioshow.com.